Satan will use all your emotions so he can be victorious. His name is the deceiver. The pastors don't think there's things going on in their congregation. I believe that the devil does exist. Be a disciple and make disciples. And you don't do that by being a pastor spectator. Confronting the devil with the overwhelming, almighty, omnipotent power of the Lord Jesus Christ. His power is absolute. He cannot be stopped. Welcome to Confronting the Devil, Fearless Dialogue. Here's your host, Kevin Collier. And thank you for joining us. On today's program, Warren Cole Smith, Vice President of the Colson Center and author of many inspirational books. And to my right is my wife, Kristen Collier. Kristen, can you lead us in prayer? This is from Treasury of Daily Prayer by Concordia Publishing House. Lord Jesus, your kingdom continues to be in our midst as you come to us now through holy water, holy words, and holy food. Help us to see that your kingdom is a kingdom of suffering, but that through suffering we will be prepared to enter into your glory when you return on that final day. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you, Kristen. And what did Martin Luther say about the angels marveling at the Incarnation? This is from What Luther Says in Anthology, Volume 1. It is not for the angels to be proud of Christ's Incarnation, for Christ did not assume an angelic but a human nature. Therefore, it would not be a surprise if the angels looked at us with envy in their eyes, because we human beings creatures far inferior to them and sinners besides, are placed above them into an honor so high and great. They worship Christ who has become our brother, our flesh and blood, and yet they are not envious but gladly grant us the honor and are sincerely pleased by the fact that Christ is our brother. They marvel at the human nature in Christ, and yet the honor and glory are not theirs but ours, and we human beings are unable to rejoice and be proud of it. Is this not a great pity? Accursed of God be this wretched unbelief. Thank you, Kristen. What does the Bible say specifically about Jesus confronting evil? This is Mark 1, 32 through 34. At evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. This is Mark 3, starting with verse 9. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. This is Mark 5, starting with verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about two thousand. The herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. I want to take this opportunity to thank all the individuals and their positive response regarding this podcast program. And I just want to thank everybody for that. And I want to remind everyone, too, that the end times narrative that is so much in talk radio and on television now has paralyzed the country in fear. And we should not fear when we know that our general and our commander is the Lord Almighty. Jesus never worried about the grid going down. Jesus didn't worry about a cashless society because he was broke. He didn't store up food and have a bunker. Supernaturally, he fed people. No one went hungry. He didn't have a bug out bag. He didn't run away from a problem. He confronted it. Sure, I see all the signs around us, but we can't live in fear. We have to be bold. We have to be soldiers in the spiritual war that has gripped our nation and the world. And we have to remember who our commander-in-chief is. He's the Lord. He's the Lord Almighty. I am not going to let fear control my life because fear is the devil's tool. Do not let fear paralyze your faith. That's what this show is all about, overcoming fear, taking control of our lives and our family and our friends, our community, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of the shadows and not hide, but be bold and take the war to the enemy. That's how we win. We need Jesus, but Jesus needs us too. Don't forget that. Warren Cole Smith is a vice president of the Colson Center and author of many message-powerful Christian books, including A Lover's Quarrel with the Evangelical Church, which we will discuss aspects of in today's interview. His latest title is Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People, which he co-authored with John Stone Street. Warren, thanks for coming on the program. Great. Thanks very much. Warren, one way I think the devil gains territory is to fragment and diminish traditional churches by distraction and deception. Thus, how are today's media-savvy megachurches killing the gospel? Well, that's a really great question. You know, I think distraction is a way to deceive. In the Screwtape letter, C.S. Lewis, in the very first letter, Uncle Screwtape instructed the young demon Wormwood not to argue his human subject, but to distract him with appetites, primarily. I mean, make him hungry hungry for lunch or distract him with to go out with his buddies and I think that um, obviously we've got a lot of distractions in our culture we've got media distractions uh, television 
iPhones that are ubiquitous now, consumer messages, uh, advertising, and so on. The problem with the church is that they have adopted that strategy as well. Rather than the church providing an alternative to this distracting culture, this culture that really is teaching us not to think, but just to spectate and to receive whatever messages are coming at us, rather than the church being an antidote to that, the church is just adopting those strategies. And so we continue, even in the church, to learn to not think. Not in all churches, and I want to be really clear, there are a lot of really faithful churches and faithful pastors out there, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but many of the megachurches that are in the news these days are churches that have rock bands instead of choirs. Uh, Choirs, of course, inviting not only participation from the congregation to be in the choir, but also choirs are much more oriented towards congregational singing. Rock bands are oriented towards putting on rock shows. Even down to the laser lights and smoke machines, we're seeing even that level of distraction in churches. And it's just militating against against uh, thinking deeply. It's militating against intergenerational worship, which I think is so important. I mean, whenever I was a kid and I could look across the aisle or, for that matter, next to me and see my parents worshiping with me or see, you know, older people, grandparents and sort of the older patriarchs and matriarchs of the church worshiping side by side with me, it had a strong impact on me. Not only did it teach me that Christianity was good for all people in all ages, and all stations in life, because they were in the church, we had the benefit of their wisdom. They would keep the church from going down too many crazy paths. I think we've lost that in the church today. We segregate our kids by age. Our worship services tend to be oriented towards 20 and 30-somethings. It's it's just one of many ways that the megachurch today militates against the kind of deep thinking that used to be characteristic of the church. Warren, don't you think churches and ministries should quit treating people as a demographic and just minister the word? Well, I think that's a great point. The short answer to your question is yes. Uh, The church has adopted marketing techniques, and of course, good marketing is demographically specific. I mean, if you're selling skateboards, you're not going to sell them to me. You know, you sell your skateboard to a particular demographic. The many problems, though, with using that strategy in the church. As my friend Frank Turek, the Christian apologist, is fond of saying, what you attract people with is what you attract them with. Two, for example, if you attract kids to youth group with paintball and pizzas rather than a sense of community and belongingness and study of the Word of God, they come to believe that pizza and paintball is what Christianity is all about. They might never get to the point where they're deeply studying the Word of God. They might check the religion box in their lives by coming to youth group and playing a paintball without ever hearing the gospel. That is a big problem. It's just one example of how marketing has sort of taken over the church. The way I say it in a lover's quarrel is that anytime there is a conflict between industry and ministry, industry typically wins. In other words, commercialization tends to overwhelm ministry. So we've got to be really, really careful that we are putting ministry front and center. And whatever communications that we use to attract people need to engage in that communication scrupulously. How did the evangelical church become such a mega ministry? 
Well, I wrote a whole book about that. <laughs> My lover's quarrel, the evangelical church sort of documents it. I would say that, just to condense it for purposes of our conversation today, Kevin, I would say that there are a few key defining moments. One was after World War II, there was a great flowering of parachurch ministries. And I'm not saying that they're all bad. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, you know, ministries, for example, like Young Life, who had as its motto, it's a sin to bore a teenager. And so whatever they did, they would make sure they didn't bore the teenager. They often, unfortunately, didn't get around to teaching the deeper things of the gospel. Then we had an event in 1972 called Explo. It took place in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas. Over 100,000 people participated in that event. It was sponsored by Campus Crusade for Christ. It's interesting to note today how many megachurch pastors, men like Rick Warren, for example, attended Explo and said that it was a defining moment in their ministry life. They used Explo in some ways as a ministry model for how they would conduct churches in the future. Then, of course, we've got Willow Creek Church. Willow Creek Church led by famous pastor Bill Hybels. It started out as a youth ministry, a sort of a pizza and paintballs youth ministry, even though I don't believe they had paintball uh, at that time. But whenever the kids that were in the youth group started aging out of youth group, they came to Bill and said, grown-up church is boring. We want to do this. And so they founded Willow Creek Church explicitly as being youth group for grown-ups. And so what we have is rather than the church providing an alternative to the culture, the church started pandering to the culture. And of course, now fast forward 30 or 40 years, and we see a whole culture that worships youth with 30-something and 40-somethings and even 50-something men in particular acting like teenagers not owning up to their adult responsibilities as fathers and husbands and providers and protectors of their families. And that has led to a rash of all kinds of other social, cultural pathologies like cohabitation and out-of-wedlock children. Now, I'm not trying to blame all of that on the megachurch. Don't get me wrong. I'm simply saying that, that it is the responsibility of the church, I believe, to provide an alternative to the culture and not simply to adopt the methodology of the culture. Concerning music, Warren, you wrote about licensing, how the evangelical industrial complex is making no money from public domain hymns, so began pushing contemporary music in churches. Can you tell me how licensing has changed the church? Yeah, that's right. I mean, what happened is three or four events happened simultaneously. As Christian music grew, Christian radio grew, and people would hear these songs on the radio and say, hey, I want to sing these songs in my church. So the first thing that happened was a disconnect between the songs that we sing in the church and the theology of our church. In the past, all churches sang either from the Psalms. I mean, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, in the Jewish temple, they sang the Psalms. In the New Testament, uh, they would also sing the Psalms, but they would also sing hymns and songs that were what I would call curated. In fact, I didn't come up with that word. Keith Getty, who is a modern songwriter, a modern hymn writer, came up with that word, is that throughout the history of the church, we have sung curated songs and hymns, songs that have been identified by the leaders in our church, the theologically sophisticated folks in our church who understood what our church was supposed to teach, would pick songs to go in our hymnal that reflected that theology, that reflected that teaching. But what started happening in the 70s and on into even today is that many of our songs are being chosen for us by what's on Christian radio. And what's on Christian radio is put there by big record companies that are trying to sell records. And most of those big record companies are owned by Wall Street companies. They're not even owned by Christian organizations. And so as a way to make money for that, since you couldn't make money by selling hymnals to churches anymore, an organization called CCLI arose, which is the Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated. Tens of thousands of churches all across America 
America pay a fee to CCLI, probably pay them every quarter, in order to sing CCLI songs in their churches. And what this amounts to is tens of millions of dollars in revenue coming from churches into CCLI that then gets redistributed out to the copyright holders of these songs. So there is a built-in financial incentive for there to be constant turnover in the songs that we're singing in our churches. For the old hymns not to be sung because there's no revenue stream attached to the old hymns. If we sing Martin Luther's uh, A Mighty Fortress or some of the great Fanny Crosby or John Wesley hymns that historically the church has been singing, again, no revenue stream attached to those, so nobody's pushing those songs to be sung in the church. And it's created a deeply pathological situation where we've got churches today that they're only singing modern songs that have been basically chosen for them by Wall Street companies and the people who listen to Christian radio, many of whom are not even Christians. They just like the way the songs sound. So we're losing what those songs, what those hymns used to teach us, the deep theology. And also, too, there's a loss of community as well. You know, a song like A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the great Martin Luther hymn, was sung by me when I was a child, but also by my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents. It connected me not only to the community of saints within my local congregation, but also to Christians all around the world and to Christians throughout history who have found those hymns to be nourishing to them and withstood the test of time. Now, I want to say really quickly, I don't think that there's no good music being written today. I just think that we may not know what some of that good music is for 25 or 50 or even 100 years. Songs need to be around for a while to stand the test of time, to prove themselves as being nourishing to our cultures, nourishing to the church and to the church community, before we, if you will, uh, codify them in our hymnals, and that's just not happening today. You know, it's really funny. Good parents always bend an ear to overhear the music that is coming out of their child's room. I never thought I'd live to see the day where I have to be concerned regarding the content of Christian music. Songs like Oceans, which some believe have a sexual connotation. Warren, can you give me an example of some types of music that would not be a good representation of God? Well, I'm having trouble coming up with any particular songs right now, to be honest with you, Kevin. But here's an example of the idea is that back in the day, 50 or 100 years ago, a lot of the songs were would teach theology. They would also teach about the church being on mission, about going out into the world and proclaiming the gospel. Or even the classic hymn that was sung at invitations, I Surrender All. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Even a song like that is a song that acknowledges our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. Whereas so many of the songs today that are contemporary praise and worship songs are songs that are not musically very satisfying, but also they're very one-dimensional in terms of what they are teaching. They're songs that might be called Jesus is My Boyfriend songs, and they don't have sort of the rich theological depth, and they don't tell the whole story of the gospel, one of God's holiness, of man's sinfulness, and of the grace of God to deliver us from that sin. You know, often we would find songs that contained all of those elements in a single song in a single hymn. By the way, I want to be really clear. I'm painting with a very broad brush. There are some great hymn writers today. I mentioned Keith Getty, who I'm a big fan of. His song, In Christ Alone, I think is a song that very much sort of harkens us back to that old tradition of the great hymns of our faith. And I think that's one reason why, while that hymn was written fairly,
fairly recently. It was written about 16 years ago. It has sort of caught hold in the church, not just in contemporary churches, but also traditional churches, because it's one of the few songs that's been written in the last couple of decades that actually does have that theological depth. Warren, when I was growing up, sharing the gospel on a personal level, person to person, spread Christianity, there was an intimate aspect to faith. Today, it's treated like a commercial enterprise, like the marketing of Christianity. How has that hurt faith? Well, it goes back to some of the stuff that we mentioned earlier, and that is that whenever ministry takes a second place to marketing, the marketing message always wins out. In other words, it's one thing to say that I'm not going to change the message of the gospel by using a different medium, like, for example, television or radio, but you always change the message in some way. The medium that you use to communicate the gospel has certain limitations to it. So for example, you know, we're in a mega church that is now the popular thing going on now in big churches is what's called multi-site, where you don't even actually hear the preacher on stage, but you actually watch him on a screen. He might be, you know, 10 miles or even a thousand miles away. You gather in an auditorium, but you watch the message on a big screen. Yeah, that's like having Pastor Max Headroom in the church. <laughs> well, it really is. I would ask, in what way is that preacher, in any meaningful sense, a pastor to you? You know, someone who would visit you when you were sick, who would counsel you. So it's just a complete violation of what it means to live in Christian community, in koinonia, one with the other. It just goes to the point where when you change the medium like that, when you change the way we gather on Sundays for worship, you're changing the gospel in some way. Are you changing it for the better? I think you can never change it for the better. That the gospel, once delivered from Scripture to the saints and passed down through generations, can't be in improved upon. And it's not, you know, yes, we are saved from hell. Yes, we are saved from sin, but we are also saved for something. And that for something is to be a disciple and to make disciples. And you don't do that by being a passive spectator. You do that by being actively involved in community, in a iron sharpening, iron relationship with your brothers and sisters. That just doesn't happen much in the megachurch today. And I think that's why we see an evangelical church that is, you know, some people call it a mile wide and an inch deep in a lover's Coral, I call it 3,000 miles wide and an inch deep. We have folks that have been raised in the church their entire lives who don't understand the basic doctrines of the faith. Now, some of these churches have defied history by promoting the pre-trib rapture. Do you think that Christian publishing houses were the ones pushing that? Well, there's no doubt about it, Kevin. That was a big business for them. I mean, if you look at the Left Behind books, and if you go back even farther to the 1970s, Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth, both that book and that series of Left Behind books both painted the pre-tribulation rapture as an essential, if you will, of belief in the church. I personally am, I don't want to say agnostic on that point, I believe what the church has always taught, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. I absolutely absolutely believe Christ will come again, but I'm agnostic on when that will happen or how that will happen. Sometimes I glibly call myself a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out. It's a mystery. I think I think the scripture tells us that the second coming of Jesus is a mystery and that when we try to say more about the second coming that is in scripture, we in effect are creating a false gospel or an idol around that particular doctrine. And I think that the publishing industry has attempted to do that. 
Warren, every community has one of your typical res life churches. The ultra-casual, incredibly informal, celebration-prone mega church with concerts, laser lights, and high emotion levels. Warren, don't these types of churches just suck all the air out of a community and hurt traditional churches both financially and regarding their membership? Well, they certainly can. There's a story that I heard about a megachurch that was part of a denomination here in town, in Charlotte, North Carolina, that wouldn't give money to the denomination's church planting fund because they didn't want churches planted within a five-mile radius of their own church. So there's sort of overt action like that because once you get a big church and a big staff and a big you know, building and a big mortgage, you got to feed the beast every Sunday. And rather than seeing it as we're all in this together and that, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, they end up becoming so focused on making sure that they're making their own nut every week and every month and every year that it becomes difficult for them to really think from a kingdom point of view. That's number one. And number two, I think it's just human nature that whenever there's a church that's kind of the buzzy church in town, the one that, you know, is getting all the media attention, everybody kind of wants to go and check it out. And that does have a tendency to have a negative effect on the other churches. The reality is that if these megachurches were in fact enlarging the number of Christians in America, we wouldn't see two phenomena. We wouldn't see, A, the number of Christians in America actually falling, and number two, we wouldn't see the number of churches in America falling. If they were enlarging the size of the pie rather than stealing sheep from other congregations, we would see more churches and more Christians. And we are not seeing that, even though we've seen literally a 100-fold rise in the number of megachurches in this country in the last 30 years. I think in your writing you wrote that in 1900 there were approximately 27 churches to every 10,000 people, and today it's down to, what, six or seven? Yeah, it's a much, much smaller number. And not only is it a much, much smaller number in terms of per capita, but it's also a smaller number of churches as a whole within the last 20 or 30 years as well. Uh, There are thousands of churches every year shutting their doors, and they're not being fully replaced. Some of them are being replaced. Obviously, we're planting new churches every year, but they're not being planted nearly at the rate that they're closing. And that's, again, in large part because everyone has a desire to be the next Willow Creek, the next Saddleback. Warren, I'd like to end on a provocative topic. What about Becky or Debbie, the mythological young Christian housewife that all people working in Christian media and radio know about? Could you address that? Yeah, you know, I discovered this whenever I actually took a tour of a Christian radio station here in my hometown of Charlotte, and they literally had pictures of a young woman in their radio station. I said, what's that picture? They said, oh, well, that's Debbie. They called her Debbie, I think, at her st- at this station. But, you know, Becky is kind of the generic name that I've given her. It came from this idea of demographic targeting. Christian radio is targeted towards 18 to 44-year-old women. Well, there's a big difference between an 18-year-old girl and a 44-year-old woman. So what they did was they micro-targeted even more, and they identified this. 34-year-old woman, married, two kids, works part-time, drives a minivan, listens to radio in her car whenever she's running her errands or off to her part-time job. And that's who they target the station to. And that's where we get phrases, for example, in Christian radio, like safe for the entire family, because they know that Becky's in the car and Becky is in charge of the radio. The kids are kind of too young to turn over to the Disney Channel or to the rock station at this point. And so they want to satisfy Becky. Now, there's nothing inherently evil about that. But the problem with it is that about 40% of listeners to Christian radio are not Christians. This is survey results that have been consistent for many, many years. So you've got 
at least 40% of Christian radio listeners who are not Christians. Uh, you've got women, you know, God bless them, I'm married to a soccer mom, so I'm not disparaging them. But, you know, in general, especially the ones that are not Christians, they're not theologically sophisticated. So the songs that they would be interested in are typically not songs that would be deeply convicting of them. And again, these are the songs that become popular. These are the songs that a couple of months later are being sung in our churches, replacing some of the great old hymns of the faith. So it's just, again, another example of how demographic targeting, marketing, has subtly infiltrated what we do in the church every single Sunday. And it's easier to manipulate Becky than Bobby? Well, you know, I guess there are plenty of Bobbies that you can manipulate. I would say this, that it's easier to manipulate Becky than it is to manipulate an elder or a pastor in a Bible-believing church that has a sophisticated understanding of what their church teaches and believes. Those folks are going to have a much clearer idea of whether a song is consistent with the theology of their church or not. And so I think we've got to get back to this idea of having the songs that we sing in Sunday morning in our churches curated by elders in our church who have a deep understanding of music, but also a deep understanding of the theology and the doctrine that we're trying to teach through our music. Absolutely. Warren, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been very spirited and eye-opening dialogue. Well, I thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on with you. You've asked great questions, and I hope I've been able to share some stuff with you that maybe your listeners will find helpful. I appreciate your time. And there's someone sitting beside me here. Oh, it's my wife, Kristen. Can you lead us in a closing prayer, please? This is from Treasury of Daily Prayer by Concordia Publishing House. Almighty God, as your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, ascended into the heavens, so may we also ascend in heart and mind and continually dwell there with him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And coming up on our next podcast, Phil Cook. Here's a little preview. Political correctness is one of the great evils of our time. There's absolutely no question in my mind. It's one of the great absolute evils of our time. By not calling things the way they are, not I think it's absolutely destroying the fabric of the country. Don't miss it. Phil Cook, our next program. I want to thank my wonderful wife, Kristen, for being beside me, always, and Steve Matheson, our announcer, who kicks us off and kicks us out. And thank you, listeners, for your words of encouragement and your prayers as we pray for our guests and the many people who contact us. This has been Confronting the Devil with your host, Kevin Collier. Visit online at confrontingthedevil.blogspot.com. Thank you.